Hey, I'm Robert Fleming sitting here in beautiful, sunny Tucson, Arizona. This is Elder Law Issues. It's a podcast produced by the law firm, the Tucson Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC, and I'm one of the partners at that firm. One of the other partners and my regular partner in this podcast is Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, and she's sitting here with me right now. And we're going to talk about living trusts. Uh, in fact, Elizabeth, I, I have a living trust and I hate it. I, I just want to revoke it. Well, Robert, you are not the only person who feels that way. We have people who come into us frequently, and some of them may be surviving spouses. They, they may have created a trust years and years ago with their husband or wife before that person died, and then they come in and say, why did we do that trust? I just want to undo it. And you know, Robert, it's actually quite a bit of work to undo a trust. It involves taking all of the assets that you put into the trust out. It also involves thinking through what currently is titled to the trust and whether or not changing that asset and moving it outside of the trust is going to mean that you have to open up new accounts. It, it, it can be incredibly cumbersome. And so the cost, Robert, to actually undo your tr trust from both a time and fee perspective is pretty significant. And I don't know if you want that. <laughs> well, and of course, of course, I was positing that as an example because I do have a living trust and I love it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but you're right that there's a lot of not just dollar cost, but time and energy spent to undo a trust. And, and in addition to the ownership of assets, there's also beneficiary designations to consider. So when we established your trust or your previous lawyer established your trust, they might have helped you change um, some of your accounts to, to name the trust as beneficiary. If you think, oh, I got everything out of the trust's name because the trust doesn't show up on my bank account, well, guess what? It might name the trust as beneficiary on your death because that's how you set it up. And now where does it go if you've revoked the trust? So that's a continuing problem as well. So you mean that life insurance policy that I have, the beneficiary designation I did on that, that says to my trust? Well, what happens, Robert, if I die and the beneficiary is my trust, but I don't have a trust? So I just want to kind of lay into a little bit of truth telling that we like to do with clients whenever they say <laughs> what happens if I die we always say you mean when you die <laughs> because you have to remember in all of this that it's there's a certain inevitability about the the end of your life uh, so that's a very good question you ask Elizabeth if you name the trust as beneficiary on a life insurance policy or payable on death beneficiary on a bank account or transfer on death beneficiary on a brokerage account and then you'd revoked the you revoke the trust then it's not clear what happens and we probably are going to have to go through some sort of court proceeding that might be in a probate proceeding it might even be in litigation if the if the bank or the life insurance company or whomever has rules about what happens when trusts are revoked that, that don't square with what you thought you were doing. So it can be kind of a nuisance. Well, Robert, when I'm sitting and chatting with people who want to terminate their trusts or get rid of their trusts, usually I have a conversation and I tell them two different things and, and get their feedback. First, is one of the issues that their trust seems too complicated. And if they say that it, it indeed is, I let them know that we can help simplify it. 
If they bring me a three ring binder with a 57 page trust or a 200 page <laughs> trust, I can often work with them to simplify that considerably. And so we talk a little bit about simplification and if that would help. The second thing is, is particularly for people who are surviving spouses and who are now managing an estate themselves, the fact of it is, is that managing the trust becomes kind of a burden and stressful. And so we talk about whether or not it may be a good time to have a co-trustee come on. That might be a son or a daughter. It may be a niece or nephew or trusted friend. In other cases, they ask me, Robert, whether or not Fleming and Curdy might step in to be their trustee. And that is work that we do, and I can talk to them about it. But the second thing is the management piece. So if you're somebody right now who has an old trust that you simply want to get rid of, slow down. Um, come on in. Let's talk about it. Let's look at the trust. Let's figure out if what we can do is simplify it. Let's see if we can figure out ways to help you manage the trust that makes you feel more comfortable. There are certain things that we can do, Robert, that make people, I think, altogether feel differently about having a trust if they feel initially pretty frustrated. One of the things I tell clients, Elizabeth, is that if they're if they think that they need to revoke their trust or they they don't need it anymore, there's really only two bad things about having a revocable living trust in most circumstances. One is that you pay the lawyer more money to prepare it in the first instance, and the second bad thing is that it's kind of a nuisance to transfer all of your assets into the into the trust's name or or do all those beneficiary designations. If you already have a trust and you've paid the lawyer and you've made those transfers, there are no longer any bad things about having a living trust. And whatever benefit that it got, maybe it's no longer cost effective. Maybe if you came in and asked us the same question today, we would not encourage you to create a trust. But that's not the same as saying undo the trust because now you're going to incur many of those costs again. And guess what? You undo the trust, you die with a will, we're going to have to probate your estate, and we're going to have to go through the same administrative steps a third time. So it's almost never appropriate to, to unravel or revoke or undo a trust. As you say, we can restate the trust, amend the trust. We can maybe split things into separate groups if, there, if there's some provision in the trust that bothers you. Uh, there are lots of things we can do to make the administration less cumbersome and less distracting for you. But it's not too likely we're going to agree with you to revoke the trust. And Robert, I, I feel like I can say this because I'm a woman and I, I love my fellow women out there. <laughs> but when I'm, I I'm pretty fond of them too, by the way. <laughs> when I when I see a surviving spouse who who had a you know wonderful wonderful life with her partner and she comes into me and she says I've never handled our finances I can't understand this I never wanted a trust to begin with I'm just not able to understand and get it I have to control myself I need to deep breathe I need to you know pause and collect my thoughts because you know what Robert I have not met a surviving spouse who walks out of our office after a conversation about how a trust works, who doesn't understand. This is a concept, how a trust works, what it does, 
that everybody can understand. And for some reason, this seems to be something that happens. And I, it makes me feel kind of tenderly. I, I think for people listening today, if you are in a couple and you don't manage your finances, your your partner does that, that's fine. It's all right. You know, it doesn't make you a bad person. But it doesn't mean that you simply can't understand how your trust works. It's a funny, it's a very funny thing. Well, I think you're right, Elizabeth. Your, your anecdote about the binder <laughs> with a 200-page document in it is, is unfortunately all too common. And if you have not been the money manager and the spouse who has been the money manager and who really thought the trust was a big deal and, and, and pushed to get it created, if that's the person who dies and you're now left trying to understand that document, it just doesn't help that it's a 250-page document. I mean, I can't get through a 250-page novel in uh, in short order reading at night. And if it's a a dense uh, legalistic document, so much the worse. I, I certainly empathize. One of the things that we are very proud of at Fleming and Curdy is that we write our documents in something that approximates the English language. And uh, and and that's one of the reasons, Elizabeth, that people leave your office understanding better than when they came in. It's because they can actually read and understand the document. First of all, it's unlikely to be a 250-page document if we are able to modify it. Um, I, I don't remember ever having written a 250-page trust, but I've read a couple of them. Well, I think the kind of moral of the story here is if you're tuning in and you're, you're feeling disillusioned and frustrated with your trust, that's okay. You're not alone. Give us a call. Sometimes I find that what we need to do is just sit down and have a couple of meetings. You know, we have a couple of goal-setting meetings with a client or clients who come in, look at their documents, talk about what they really want, have them think about it a little bit because this is the one thing. If we start to work on your trust, to simplify it, to really make some modifications, you can't easily change your mind (laughs) two or three weeks into this process because it will become more confusing. So what I try and do, Robert, is is make sure that in those consultations, we may have uh, two or three of them, making sure that people really understand what we're doing if we're going to continue on with the trust path. Because if we move forward with that and we keep your trust in place and you're still frustrated, we haven't done our job. Well, thank you for this chat, Elizabeth. I started out hating my trust, but you've made me you've made me believe it was a good idea and I love it now. So, mission accomplished. My name's Robert Fleming, and I'm one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. You've been listening to me and my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rollins Freeman. We do this every week. We have a podcast called Elder Law Issues. And Oh, hey, wait, you're listening to Elder Law Issues. And we hope you will do it again. We'll talk to you then.